I came across a, a great quote this week by Mark Twain. He says, don't complain and talk about all your problems. 80% of people don't care. The other 20% will think you deserve them. Is there a single one of us who hasn't been guilty of grumbling or arguing? Not me. I, I'm not blameless in this. But grumbling and arguing and complaining are sort of an interesting thing because I think on the surface it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Uh, actually, in fact, in a lot of cases, I think in the moment, we think of it as a good thing. We think of it as a bit of a, a pressure release and we get a little bit of venting off of our chest and we go, well, I feel a little bit better. Sadly, the church has been known to be a big group of complainers for a really, really long time. In fact, since the inception of the church. And even as we'll see uh, through the message today, it goes all the way back to the early days of God's people Israel in the wilderness, too. As we'll come to hear from Paul today, as we continue on in this ancient letter to the church of Philippi in Macedonia, our complaining and our arguing with one another causes far more damage than we perhaps expect. And I believe that might be even why some people are rejoicing in the decline of the church in the West. So I want us to take a moment as we look at this passage to really just stop and think. How guilty am I, or are you, for complaining and arguing? Hmm. It's heavy when we think about that. But it's something we've got to do. As we'll see, the Apostle Paul uh, encourages the people in Philippi not to complain or to argue because he recognizes that this is a, a potential huge problem in the place where they're located. As the city of Philippi, they're located in a Roman colony that's strategically placed for the empire to sort of come back and forth through. And as such, they have a great opportunity to share their faith and to live it out uh, in a strategic way, in a strategic part of the world, so others may come to know Jesus. But because they're a Roman colony in the center of, of the empire, they also face a lot of persecution and difficulties too. And that's just on top of the fact that it's a group of people, and whenever you get a group of people together, there's going to be complaining and arguing. And so Paul says there's sort of an advantage to where you are, there's sort of a disadvantage, and you've got to be really careful what you do. And so hopefully, as we pick up on what Paul says to Philippi, we'll think of how we can apply this to our lives too. If you've got your Bible, join me, Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 18 today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens, or as well, there's some out at the Connect desk and on the bookshelf in the back, and those are free for you to take. But let's pick up in verse 12, we'll read to 18, and then we'll come back through. 
Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So right off the bat, we start with this word, therefore. And uh, for anyone who maybe doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to English, English literature, whenever you read the word therefore, it means you need to pay attention to what came before. This is a linking word that helps us to understand. Sometimes, unfortunately, when we come to the Bible, you might pick this up and you see that there's this fresh heading there, at least in my Bible there is, and I go, oh, new section. Well, it's not really a new section. The translators put that there for your reference. Instead, it has therefore to tell us whatever Paul's going to say is connected to what he just said a verse or two, a chapter or two before. It depends on the context. But here in this section, it's particularly connected to what happened earlier in verses 5 to 11, which we studied last week. But let me refresh our memories of what Paul said before. He said, in your relationships with one another, you can underline that if you want, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset is Christ Jesus. What was Jesus' mindset? Well, he who was in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, becoming made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, is what Paul says. So Paul says, therefore, he says, because... I have called you to have an attitude like Christ Jesus. You're supposed to do this certain thing. Because Jesus decided to humble himself and sacrifice himself for you, you should live in a certain way. Because of Jesus, you should be willing to sacrifice too, even without complaint or arguing. And so Paul says, therefore, because of all God has done for you, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now this is an interesting phrase to me when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, it's an interesting statement just because of what he's just come off of. Paul, all through his letters, including in these verses before, always gives us this picture that Jesus died for us in our place so that by his grace, so meaning at no cost to us, we by faith can be saved. We can be returned to relationship with them. So why then is Paul telling us we've got work to do? Like what is Paul saying here? I mean, all over the place he says, salvation is not by your work so that no man can boast. But here, I got work to do. I got to work out this salvation. What does that mean? Well, what it means is we often have a very limited view of what the word salvation really means. Salvation all throughout scripture actually has a bunch of different meanings which are all linked and that gives us a little bit of an idea of how to view what Paul is saying. When we read the word salvation in scripture, we should understand three things. First, that we were saved, second, that we're being saved, and third, that we will be saved. So we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. Well, what does that mean? Because again, we're just defining something by saying the same word over and over again. What are we really trying to say? Well, on the left-hand side of the image that you have there, it says that you were saved or I was saved. And when we say that, what we mean is that because Jesus died in our place and rose again, when we put our faith in him, we become justified. Justified is the theological term here. And justified is this like legalistic word that means that we have faced justice and we have been found not guilty. It's what we often, this is like the word we're most often using when we say I'm saved. It means that because Jesus died in my place, he paid the debt that I was supposed to pay. So I was supposed to die because of my sin. But because Jesus died in my place, I get to live with him. I'm now made right with God. I'm justified. I am no longer worthy of a sentence of death. There's no conviction that stands against me. On the other end... We have uh, what Thomas encouraged us to think about in that one song where Jesus is going to return and one day we're going to be saved in that what we mean there and the theological term for this is that we will be glorified. We get to go to glory. What does that mean? Well, it means that we get to experience an existence that is better than this. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we have this promise that one day he'll return and he will take us out of this place and he will recreate heaven and earth and our physical bodies and he will allow us to live an eternal existence with no more sorrow, suffering, sadness, or sin. So there's no longer going to be anyone doing things wrong 
There's going to be no more sickness that affects us. There's nothing that's going to break our heart or bring us to sorrow. Instead, there's only going to be eternal joy and gladness in the presence of God and the other people who he saved. And so that's one of the other meanings that we have that is, I'm going to be saved. But what's interesting is that we actually live in between these two realities. As followers of Jesus, we've been saved, and we're going to be saved, but right now we're living through all just the muck and junk and garbage of ourselves and our world, and so we're in process of being saved. Again, there's a theological term for this. It's the word sanctify. To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart for special use. In certain religious tradition, particularly in that of ancient Judaism, where God first called his people, he would have them do things like set apart a group of people to be priests. And those priests would have items that were set apart to be used for worshiping him. So there were like cups for wine that could only be used for church worship. There were certain platters that could only be used for certain ways of honoring God. There were certain other items that had to be made for use, and they couldn't be just eaten by anybody, but there's food that had to be eaten only by the priests or only sacrificed to God. So there's things that are separated for God's use alone. And so that's what we're being saved to do. We're being made separate from every other way that the world tells us to go so that we can worship God and accomplish building out his kingdom so that we're part of what God's trying to do for the we will be saved sort of part. And so right now, our hope is that what we're doing is growing to become more like Jesus, set apart from the world, and that is the work of salvation. It's hard work. I mean, I've been trying to follow Jesus for, I don't know, almost 30 years now, and, and as part of that, I've had to grow and struggle with who I am and struggle with the things that I just keep doing that I shouldn't do and I struggle with the things that I know I should do and I just don't have the motivation to do. And so there's this work that needs to take place. And this doesn't just become work for me on my own, but it becomes work for me to do with all of you. When we're reading this part, we have to remember back to verse 5 what Paul was saying. He was saying, in your relationships with one another. In our relationship with one another, part of our growing to be more like Jesus, part of us being set apart to worship him, means that together we're refining each other, we're encouraging each other to be more like Jesus, We're helping one another take steps of faith that are maybe hard to do on our own. And there's good news even beyond that, that God is in the midst of it. And that's why right after Paul says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. All through this idea of salvation from uh, past to future, even now in the present, God is the one doing the work, and he enables us to do it. 
St. Augustine or Augustine of Hippo once said, our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them, and they are also God's because of the grace causing our free will to produce them. He says elsewhere, God makes us to do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. A lot of me following Jesus isn't actually things that I inherently want to do. A lot of the things that I need to do for our church family to be healthy and me to contribute towards the working out our salvation together isn't stuff that like naturally pops into my mind and feels easy or good to do all the time. But because of God's grace and love, not just for me, but for all of you, he works in my heart and my mind to enable me to do that for you. And likewise, he's working in all of you to do these things that you might not want to do for yourself, but you know maybe because of God sort of whispering it into your heart and your mind and your soul that this is something you've got to do. And as you do it, you don't just do it for yourself, but you do it for everyone else. And we benefit because of you going through that. But there's this sort of give and take. God lets us be a part of this. And while God enables us to do it, he also invites us to join him in putting in the work to make that thing come true in our life. And so we're supposed to work with one another to set ourselves and each other apart for what God would have for us. And this is serious business. Paul's not like this is an optional thing. Like this isn't just something that we go, well, I'll do it when it feels good to do. Or I'll maybe like do it when, you know, I feel like a burning desire that I need to grow today. No, he says that this is supposed to be something that's serious and it's supposed to be done with fear and trembling. We're supposed to realize that because of who God is and how set apart he is from us, that there is a whole lot of work to do. And it's scary how far away we are from the people we're supposed to be. But then we're supposed to have joy because he enables us to do it. And we take part in this for our own benefit in, in this, in Peter says this, he says somewhere else in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, Be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. As we take seriously the work that God wants us to do, we actually get a lot of self-assurance. We get a lot of, not assurance in ourselves, but in, within ourselves, we have assurance that, no, I really am connected to who God is. I really am seeing the work of God. And that reveals to me that I am saved. There's a lot of people, and I grew up this way, I don't know about you, but I grew up in this way of being like, did it take? Like, was I saved? I remember going to so many like youth conferences and summer camps and every year for a long time I would go, I don't know if the last time I accepted Jesus it really took, so I'm going to do it again. 
And a lot of us, we actually live with that fear, whether or not we're going to these conferences and having that moment. We sort of go like, do I really believe? Like, is God really with me? Is, am I really saved? Well, we know it's true when we feel called by God's spirit and we participate in what he wants to do. It actually eases a burden that we often carry upon ourselves when we choose not to do what Paul's inviting us to do. So there's actually a good gift that Paul's giving us here and inviting us to do something else. Now there's gonna, here's the rub. When you're growing and when I'm growing, there's always rough edges. And there's always mistakes that are made. And as we do that, we rub and the friction takes place, and things start to heat up, and what happens? We grumble. Why are they like that? Why don't they get me? What on earth is going on over there? We begin to argue because we see things from different places, not recognizing that we're imperfect people and, and we start to go at one another. And so Paul, knowing this, gives us this encouragement. In verse 14, so I want you to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Like, I mean, I'm guilty of this, right? Like, I, 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 I sometimes complain about not being able to do the things I want to do. Sometimes I argue because, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to work with other people or to be with other people. And, and so we get in this place and, and they do things they don't want to do. Or sometimes I can even be condescending and be like, well, it's really not that bad, right? Like, you know, and like I remember growing up and you get hit and hurt in sports and the coach is like, suck it up. You could have broke your arm. Like, get out there, walk it off. Like, this is what I do. And this is like sort of how I treat people about very serious matters sometimes. And sadly, that's the way the church has often done this. From historic church past to the present, we have complaining spirits and our complaining spirits actually become problematic barriers towards us being able to work out our salvation together. Because it puts strains on our relationships with one another. It causes us to view people with the wrong lens and not the lens that Jesus views them through. And so we distance ourselves from one another. We create factions and, and groups that are at odds with one another. This isn't just stuff that happens in the world. It happens in this room, in our building, in other churches, everywhere. And it's always happened. I mean, Paul, I think, is reflecting on this because he, uh, the reason I think that is because he quotes something that comes actually from ancient Israel. When he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, and then we see in quotes, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, what we hear, if we have a good biblical lens, is the words of Deuteronomy chapter 32. 
You see, when Paul thinks back through the history of God's people, he knows that this has always been a problem. And so rather than attacking the people he, uh, of the present, he points to the people of the past. And he goes, well, let me give you a real-life example. There was this group called the ancient Israelites. And whether you're Jewish or you're a Gentile, right, this is him writing to uh, the people in Philippi. He's like, you got to know their story. Well, they were a, a group of people who decided to worship God. And uh, for when they worshiped God, lots of things went right, but there were a whole bunch of things that went wrong. In fact, for 400 years, they got taken as slaves by the nation of Egypt, and they cried out to God, and they wanted to see their deliverance because they were being punished unjustly. They were watching family and friends, women, children, young and old, dying under these dire situations. And and you know what happened? God came through. He sent them Moses. And Moses came directly from God to deliver them through this circumstance. And through a bunch of miracles, God took them out of Egypt into the wilderness to wander towards the promised land where he told them that he would bring them. But guess what took place? They forgot what God did. And they started to complain and argue. They complained and argued with one another. They definitely complained and argued with Moses and Aaron, and they definitely, even worse than that, decided to not trust and complain against God. And because of that, what happened is a whole generation never got to go through the desert into the promised land. There were people who had to miss out on what God promised because they would complain and argue. They put barriers in front of themselves from what God had for them. And so Paul, speaking to Philippi, is trying to give this language that we see in Deuteronomy 32, where he said, God, his works are truth, all his ways are right, he is a faithful God, and he is not unjust, he's just and pure, but... The children sinned, but they sinned, so this is all of Israel. They sinned, and they who were not his children, full of fault, were a crooked and depraved generation. So what Paul's doing is he's calling back and forth, and we see this again in verse 14 to 16, that we want to be the opposite of that. And so Paul says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that you may become the opposite of what was true for Israel that you will become blameless and pure, and that you will be the children of God who are without fault in a warped and crooked generation. It's really easy, and I've done this so many times, to come to the book of Philippians and to read on through, and we just pick up on the highlights. We pick up on all the words about joy because Philippians is a book of joy without encountering these words, without maybe taking them seriously. The thing that counters our joy, the thing that counters us experiencing all God would have for us, not just as individuals, but as a group, Not just us within the church, but our world too, who needs to hear from us about a different way of living and a God who loves them and can change their lives. Instead of experiencing all that, what we do is we just sit and we complain and argue amongst ourselves. 
and that puts a barrier in our way. Right? That's what Mark Twain was trying to say. What's going to end up happening if we live this way is a whole bunch of people are going to start to not care about us. 80% aren't going to care about our problems, but the other 20% are going to look and go, well, they got what they deserved. I really, truly, genuinely believe that's why we're seeing people celebrate the decline of the church in the West. Because we have become a group of people who have lost focus on what's important. We've lost focus of remembering that the God who, loved, who created us loved us and the God who loved us saved us and he's brought us through and he's taking us to an even better place. We've lost focus of what we're supposed to do. That's that we are supposed to do what Jesus told us, to go out into the world, to be light and salt to the generation that lives around us so that they too might see how good he is. That they would write taste, that's the salt, that they would see, that's the light, the good news. But what have we done instead? We've got complacent, We've got focused on ourselves and our problems. We've allowed those rough edges to be our focal point. And because of that, we've lost the interest of so many people. We've even made others enemies who go, well, I'm glad that this is what you're going through. And it's all happening because we lost sight. Our complaint is always because we've lost focus on the right thing. We live in a world that's so divided. We live in a world that's so antagonistic. I mean, we know that, like, this has always been. People who are like, wow, this, this part in history is worse than the last part of history, will read Deuteronomy 32. They were the cro- crooked and depraved generation. Every generation is crooked and depraved, and that's why this message is meaningful just as much back then as it is today. We live in a world of brokenness and arguing, and yes, we maybe see it a little bit more clearly because we've just gone through COVID and all this political turmoil we're going through and and all the financial downturn and all this, and so we see the bad news Well, that's actually an opportunity for us to give a breath of fresh air as we bring the good news. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased this passage uh, in his, in his tra- uh, paraphrase the message. He says this, Do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering and no second guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted a breath of fresh air in the squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. This is what we have opportunity to do. If we're willing to put down our complaints, if we're willing to set aside our arguments, and if we're willing to pick up instead the good news of who Jesus is, if we're willing to pick up the attitude that Jesus himself had to bring the story that Jesus himself lived and continues to live so that others could have a glimpse of what good living would look like. When they look at a church that's fighting and complaining, they go, well, that's no different than the rest of my life. 
There's no glimpse of life and good news. But when a church together can be unified, both us here in this room and even our church with other churches here in the city, when we can be seen as together and aligned, focusing on spreading the good news, focusing on the good things God has done, then people say, wow, there's actually something different there. That looks like a breath of fresh air. Oh, why is this happening? Oh, the living God is alive and active too. I want to be a part of that. I want to experience that change. I want to live this good news too. I don't bring this all up to beat us up. I don't want any of us to sort of feel confused. This isn't meant to guilt us into something. Instead, it's meant to encourage us to live in a way that we can do. I believe fully within this church family that we have opportunity to live this out. I believe in our community of so many churches. We have incredible opportunities to see God work as we work together. I'm really encouraged. I actually get to, together maybe once a quarter with a group of 18 lead and executive pastors from around Abbotsford, and we get together and we just talk about the state of the church. And, you know, we have a lot of reasons to compete and to fight. I mean, we all know about the lazy Susan of church attendance that goes around the city of Abbotsford, and we could all fight for our piece of the pie as it goes around. But instead, what we have opportunity to do is to pray together and talk together, and encourage one another, and find partnerships that we have, right? We do stuff like the prayer walk, where together with all these churches across the city, every year in the spring, we walk the streets, and, and we pray for every house, and hopefully as much of the city as we can. We have opportunities to do that. And when people look at us, they actually see something different than they're used to seeing. They're used to seeing people who could be competitive working together. Oh man, that's good news. And I know there's a lot of you who are participating in those kind of ways too. You're working with other Christians. I know there's people in our church who gather together with, with other Christians from uh, different churches and they pray outside. There's a group of moms who pray outside one specific school for all the kids as they, they go in. And, and when people look and see that, they see a whole bunch of different people and maybe if they know the different stories, they see something different, something they want to be a part of. The question is, what's that thing for you? What's the place in your life, instead of grumbling and complaining and arguing, you can step into working with others, being a, fresh, a breath of fresh air? Where's the place you can bring the good news? God brought all of us together so that we could work out our salvation and so we could work towards the salvation of our city. How are we going to do that? Well, in addition to whatever comes to your mind of how you can serve or where you can be a part of being with other believers, I, I want to encourage you to do a few things on the regular. The first thing I want you to do is remember the good work of God. That's what Paul kept pointing the people of Philippi back to. 
Remember that you and I each don't deserve our own way. Whether it's you have tensions with other people in this room or you have tensions with Christians somewhere else, remember that neither of you deserve your own way. Actually, we all deserve hell. But because of the good news of who Jesus is, we get to be heirs to all the promises that God has given. And we get to experience a better life now and for eternity too. And we get opportunity, instead of getting our own way, to get God's way in our life and with those we're fighting with. As part of that, we need to seek forgiveness from one another. There's many of us who spend way too much time arguing and complaining and causing division without remembering that a lot of it is actually misunderstanding. A lot of it is actually uh, just hurt people hurting people. And so what we need to remember is to forgive one another and to be willing to step into the difficult uh, conversations and times where we too can be forgiven. Um, I myself went through that this week. I had a conversation with some people who uh, we had been sort of at odds on a, a couple things and, and relationships were, were tense and we got to get together in a room and we started first of all by talking about who God is and what he means to us. And then we got to sit and we got to talk to one another about the different hurts that we'd each given and received from one another And then we got to forgive one another in that room. That was actually a beautiful thing. It was beautiful because it was a reminder of who God is and the power that he has. But it was also a reminder of what God wanted to do in our own lives. And it was a reminder that God's working in someone else's life too, whether or not we could see it. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. But it's beautiful, and it brings forth the message of the good news in our own lives, whether or not it ever extends beyond that room. Who's someone maybe you got to go to? Who's someone you need to remember to forgive because you've first been forgiven? Finally, I encourage you to work towards not being negative. Work towards always seeing the salvation of yourself and those around you. It's Eldridge Cleaver, right? The, uh, the, the famous American activist who was involved in, in the, the civil rights movement who said, there is new, no neutrality in this world. You're either part of the solution or you're a part of the problem. What can we do to work towards building one another up without negativity, without complaint of that person being a little different than we expect them to be, without them doing exactly what we would want them to do? How can we contribute to one another so that we can paint this beautiful picture of what the church should be, what God can do? Maybe then, maybe then we would shine like the stars in the sky that people would want to look to. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. And God, I know this passage is, Lord, it's kind of uncomfortable. It's kind of uh, a challenge because, Lord, I know for myself and I know for everyone else in this room, Lord, that we're all guilty of this. That we're all guilty of complaining and arguing in different places and different spheres. And God, I just thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you that you already died to forgive us for all of that. I thank you that you've already given us your Holy Spirit so we can change that. God, I thank you that you are calling us to a better way of living towards being more and more like you. God, I pray that as we try to work out our salvation as individuals and together with one another, Lord, that we would learn to have grace with one another, that we would learn how to have patience with one another, that we would learn how to forgive one another, that we would be doing so in such a way that it's not just evident inside, but it's evident outside of us as well, that people can see a difference, that people can know that there's a better way of living. So, Lord, that there can be a, a, a move of fresh air through our city, through our homes, through our, our schools, through our workplaces, through our neighborhoods. Lord God, would it, it be captivating to people that as they see that there's a difference between the church and the world, Lord, that they would be drawn to you. God, I thank you that you're already working in the lives of those who we don't even know you're working in their lives already. That you're way ahead of us, God, and that you're just inviting us to catch up to you. God, I pray that we would be people not with a toxic positivity, but with a real, genuine positivity of what only you can do. And that we would know that it would come true. So, Lord God, as we join you in that, we thank you. We thank you for who you are, that you have made it possible, and that you continue to make it possible until the day that you come through and return and bring us back to be with you. Lord, we know we can't do it on our own, but we only do it because of you in and through us. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. And Heavenly Father, would you be glorified as we live this through. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.